0: to 2 Timothy chapter 1, and as you do that, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, uh, what a great joy it is to gather as your people in this place, and even to know that uh, people are gathered all over the world on this Lord's Day. We're not alone. Uh, you've called them, and we get to be a, a part of this great process of remembering what you've done for us and thanks for this book the scriptures the bible that we get to open and and as we do that we read it together we hear your voice and you speak through the words that you preserved for us and those words are life-giving especially in the context of our community that we get to do this together and listen together and encourage each other together that your spirit Meets us and joins us. And that's my prayer this morning. This just wouldn't be one man speaking to many. It would be the God of the universe through one and many speaking and encouraging our hearts to continue to walk with you. So do that this morning, we pray. Meet us. Uh, help our hearts and our ears and our minds to be attentive to what um, what, what you want us to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So... Uh, some of you know this, second Timothy, this letter to timothy is it 's like a farewell discourse, and I thought it was appropriate this being our last Sunday here. Most of you know that we 're moving uh, to to teach from this passage, as Paul writes to his friend, his son in the faith, his pastor to encourage him. so this morning we 're going to look at verses chapter one verses fifteen. Through the end of the chapter, then two verses two to two. But I'm going to read starting in verse eight of chapter one to get a little context. So, Second Timothy chapter one, verse eight. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing, the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and mortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you know well all the service He rendered at Ephesus. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This final discourse that we hear here from Paul, there's a number of farewell discourses in the scriptures. This is one of them. I don't know about you, but something about death has the ability to focus our attention. And I don't know about you, what would it be like if you knew that your death was imminent? What would you say? What would you do? How would you respond if you knew it was forthcoming to you right up on your doorstep? It has an ability to focus what you'd want to say, to prioritize what you would want to say. When I was 17 years old, I had my appendix out in an emergency surgery. And just before going in to the operating room, my brother looked at me and said, Hey, Rick, if you don't make it, can I have your stereo? And I think I said something to the affirmative that, yes, he could, but I don't exactly remember. But I remember the question. I was thinking, if I wouldn't have made it through that operation, my last words would have been, yes, Eddie, you can have my stereo. And so Paul writes with something on his heart. He wants to say something to his friend, Timothy, this pastor at Ephesus, this capital city of Asia. These are his last words, likely to Timothy. And then he wants him to hear. There's a lot of things he's going to say in this letter, this letter of 78 verses as it's broken down for us. But there's one point that he makes in everything that he says. The one point that Paul makes, the one point that he wants Timothy to hear, the one point that's been preserved for us to hear and to respond to is that the gospel, the good news would be preserved and it'll be passed on. That he wants him to hear that this good news that, that Paul had received from Jesus himself, he wants to make sure that Timothy knows of utmost importance is that he would guard it, that he would preserve it, and he would make sure that it's passed on in such a way that it would be self-perpetuating. That this message would go on so he would continue and the Beauty as we sit here today in 2019 in Lawrence, Kansas, is that we see the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of Timothy and those who have followed, such that that message was preserved, such that we have heard it, that we have responded. And the call to Timothy, the call to us, is to do the same, to seek to guard the good deposit, to guard this gift, this good news that's been entrusted to us. Indeed, more than just entrusted to us, has offered life and freedom and forgiveness so that we can know what real life is. And so Paul writes to him, says, don't miss this. This is the point in everything that he's going to say. As we sit here this morning, that those words should challenge us as well. The commands and the imperatives that Timothy received are for us as well that as we hear them to live this out, to be faithful with this message. So this morning as we think about this in the backdrop, this reality that Paul writes, he wants his readers to be reminded of the importance of guarding and preserving the gospel in such a way that it would be continue and it would be perpetuated. And there's three things I want to point out here. First of all, we're going to look at these verses at the end of chapter 1. These two examples that he gives. And in and through this example, we see there's an implication of what the gospel ought to do in our lives. In the example of these relationships. That the gospel affects the way we treat each other. The gospel is put on display in our relationships. And then in the first two verses of chapter 2, we see two commands, two imperatives to be strengthened and to entrust. That we need to be in strengthened, strengthened with the power that comes from another source outside ourselves. And this charge to Timothy, this charge to us, is to be reminded where that strength comes from. And then finally, the purpose of that strength is so that we will be faithful to entrust it to others. These first few verses we're looking at, 15 through 18, where Paul tells us about this, this division that had taken place. You're aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Fagellus and Hermogenes. By the way, I'm going to say those with confidence. I don't know how to say them, but I'm just going to say it like a Doesn't sound good? Phagellus and Hermogenes. Two men who are likely the ones who headed up this division, this faction in Asia. That, that, that Paul is referring to here. We have a negative example and a positive example. He goes on to talk about Anisiphorus as a positive example. And in the middle of this charge that he has given to Timothy to not be ashamed and to guard the good deposit, he breaks off and we have this interjection of this, this story, an account that, that Timothy would be aware of since he's in, he's in Ephesus, the capital city of Asia. And Paul says, you know what's taken place. That all in Asia have abandoned me. That there's a division that's taken place there. And there's an example. And then he goes on to talk about the positive example of Anisiphorus. And he asks the question, why would Paul break off his charge to give this example? What's he doing? What's he telling us? And the one thing that I think is important as we look at this is that the way the gospel operates in our lives affects the way we treat each other. It affects our relationships. It puts them on display. The negative example, if you will, squelches, it mutes the power of the gospel. The positive one puts on display the beauty of the gospel. So this negative example, we see this division that's there. These two men obviously had led this, this um, division that's, that, that's a part of this. And Paul says, all in Asia have turned away from me. And he asked the question, Paul really did all in Asia? And this is one of those places where you say, probably a little bit of an overstatement, because at least Timothy hasn't turned away, at least those in his church, at least Menacephorus hadn't, at least his family hadn't, but nevertheless, there was a real division that had taken place in the church in Asia that Paul is referring to, that many had turned away, at least from Paul. There's a real impact on Paul personally, a real impact on the church that's here. And this word turned away, you need to ask the question, what exactly does it mean when he says many have turned away? And lots of folks have commented on this. I'm not exactly sure, but it seems that what we have here is not so much a apostasy or turning away from the Christian faith, but likely turning away from Paul personally, that they had turned away from him The text says, all have turned away from me. And it's likely because of his imprisonment. Paul had just been imprisoned in Rome. And it's likely that this division was a result of that, that there was a group of them that no longer wanted to be identified with this enemy of the state. And so they would separate from him and they turned away from him personally. First to that, and certainly it's personal, it's emotional to him as Paul, the minister of the gospel, who sought to be faithful with the communication and the, to guard it and to pass it on, that he would experience this. But it's also difficult in that the division obscures this message of the gospel. It makes it harder to see when the church is divided. So he gives us the negative example. And then he goes on and gives us the positive example of anissaforas. We have several verses telling us about him. We don't know a whole lot but he's this faithful example of one who was loyal to Paul. While many others were turning away, that the way, and the saw the way that the gospel would call him to live, this good news, that he needed to seek Paul out, that he needed to find him. And that, that in his life, it reflects the beauty of what God has done. And it drives him to find him in Rome. And we see that the gospel is seen in these kinds of relationships. It's seen in these kinds of responses as if we have as we look at Anisiphorus. But the question is, why is it that many had turned away? And we see a little hint of it here in this text about Anisophorus. Paul says, He was not ashamed of my chains. He was not ashamed. And certainly the implication is that those who turned away no longer wanted to identify with Paul. Because of the shame that would be attached to that. And so We have in this that he was, they were ashamed. And of course, in this period of time, under the Neronian, persecution was not a great time to be a Christian. Christians were not held in high regard. They were despised. They were loathed. They were an enemy of the state. And oftentimes they were even persecuted. And it's in this period of time that it might be advantageous, at least to oneself, to say, maybe it's better... If we distance ourselves from this person, this one who is, by all respects, the one who is identified as the Christian that represents Christ. Let's distance ourselves. Let's kind of create another place over here. And and so it seemed that that's what's taken place. And this group in Asia had abandoned Paul by shifting their allegiance. They no longer to be identified with him. But in so doing, they bring great harm to the church certainly to paul but anisiphor says exactly the opposite we're told that he was not ashamed of my chains that the very thing that would be shameful to the world the way that anisiphor saw it was completely different his loyalty to paul his loyalty to christ would cause him to do nothing else but to seek him out even though the shame could be attached, it was a dangerous, it was certainly disadvantageous to be a Christian. It certainly affects his own family. But his loyalty and the way he understood the gospel could, would call him to do nothing less than to seek Paul out, to identify with him, to, to, to maintain this loyalty and to live out this kind of courage as a friend in the faith. Paul says, he searched for me earnestly and he found me. Apparently, in the Roman prison system, it would not have been exactly easy to find where Paul might have been. He had to search earnestly for him. This is not like the house arrest that we find Paul in at the end of Acts. He's in a much more dire circumstance. He is in chains. And we're told that, that he, on force, finds him. He searches him. He finds him. But then it goes on, he says, he often refreshed me. He often refreshed me. And that word itself is very significant. In fact, it's used one time in the whole New Testament. And it means to breathe new life into, to refresh, to make alive again. And Paul purposefully says, I want you to see the picture of this one and his loyalty and his courage to Christ and what happened. He brought new life into me, the apostle of the Gentiles. Even in moments of maybe despair or discouragement, he refreshed me. We know that physically Paul would have been in need of the care of others. The Roman prison system isn't exactly like ours. Food, clothing, care would have come from somebody on the outside. And when everybody else had abandoned, Paul here comes in his to say, I want to come and care for you. And he offers at least physical help to him. Later on in the letter to, to Timothy, he says, hey, by the way, bring my cloak. And if you can, please come before winter because that would be really helpful. And so we see physically the need that Paul had that Anisiphorus met. But then also, if you imagine if you're Paul, and here you are sitting in a Roman prison cell after giving your whole life to this and having a whole division of the church abandon you emotionally and spiritually what that would have done what that would have felt like and so there's a refreshment this reinvigorating of life even into paul emotionally and spiritually as he remembers and finds out i'm not alone i haven't been completely abandoned someone else is here and so this one comes with flesh on to represent Christ, demonstrates the beauty of the gospel by saying, Here I am. If I can stop just for a second, I want you, with that picture and that example in your mind, as a reminder for each and every one of us who call ourselves Christians, of the incredible power that we have to help one another, to refresh and to encourage one another by our presence, by our loyalty, by our allegiance, to be there in those moments. If I asked you to raise your hand if you've ever felt abandoned, I bet you all would raise your hand. At some point in your life, you felt alone completely. But for many of you, someone with flesh on shows up and they demonstrate the goodness of God by just being present in your life. Maybe they said something. Maybe they didn't say anything at all. We have an incredible opportunity, responsibility, and power to speak into each other's lives. To be that refreshment. To breathe fresh life into each other's lives. What a great picture we have in the Sepphoris. In, in what a great call for each one of us to be reminded of that. We can't carry each other's burdens, but we're called to help. I'm getting ready to clean out my office, getting ready. I haven't started yet to clean out my desk, but in my top right drawer in the very back is a pile of notes that have come from you. Notes, that would come at different points in time over the course of 16 years. I have notes, and many of those came <laughs> at just the right time. When I was wondering, what the heck am I doing here, or who am I, or whatever, there would be a note that would come of encouragement. The presence of Christ in and through this. And I'm reminded of the power that we have to care for one another and to breathe fresh life into each other's life the way that the gospel is preserved the way that the gospel is passed on is through and in these kinds of relationships of which anisiphorus was a model and the gospel and the its beauty is seen in this loyalty see both of these examples that paul gives us right the division and, and anisiphorus are examples of the way that we treat each other in the church. There's a positive example and a negative example of the way we treat each other in the church. And Paul says, may you in this forest receive mercy from the Lord. He says, see this example. Now, this does not neglect the fact or negate the fact that we have differences of opinion in the church. That... There are things that divide us, differences that we hold that are real and sometimes very profound. Paul knew that he knew the difference and remembered the difference and the separation between he and Barnabas over this complicated issue of what to do with John Mark. If you go to Acts chapter 15, you can read about it. Paul would not move forward with John Mark. Barnabas would not move forward without him. And as a result, they they split paths and they divided over what to do with John, Mark, a real profound difference in practice that divided them. And so it's not that Christians are without differences that are real. And yet the thing that we must understand and seek how to do is, how is it that we can be loyal to each other even in our differences? What does loyalty look like even when we differ? How can we seek each other out even in those differences? The beauty is at the end of this letter, if you keep reading in 2 Timothy, you have that little interesting profound statement where Paul says to Timothy, bring John Mark with you because he is useful to me. That somehow, as Paul is reflecting, even on that division and separation with Barnabas so many years earlier, that something had transpired, something had happened, certainly to bring a kind of resolution in his relationship with John Mark. Perhaps even in Paul's life, I don't want to go too far here, to change the way that he saw that division. And he says, bring him with you, because you know what? He's useful. Maybe, maybe, I didn't handle that quite right. So bring him. We see that great picture that even in differences, we have the great opportunity to be loyal to one another and to grow and to learn. And so the gospel is preserved in and through these kinds of relationships. This example that he gives us to see it and to allow it to to be a model for us that we would seek to emulate. And in so doing, we put on display the beauty of what God has done for us in Christ. But then Paul goes on. We have an implication in the story. Then we have two imperatives, two commands. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. We have a a charge, a challenge here that he gives to Timothy, a summons. And in this text, there's three different commands. We're going to look at two of them this morning. Be strengthened. Some of your versions will say be strong. The second one is entrust. And the third one, if we had time, which I'm not going to touch on today, is in suffering. Three commands to Timothy that we have there. Now, it's important just to take a, a minute here and step back and to realize that as, as Paul writes this letter, that there's a particular time and place that, that he's, as he writes to Timothy an intention that he has. And that he's writing to a pastor in Ephesus about how to discharge his duties, how to carry on the tasks that he has. So he gives him some particular tasks, tasks for him, some commands, but for us, the application is no different. Timothy had a particular place in which he was carrying out those duties, and so do we. For all those who have been entrusted with this good news, this gospel, this good deposit, as he calls it, by God's plan of salvation that he's exacted in our lives for all those who have it for all those who have a sphere of influence which by the way is all of us for all of those who have a little piece of the world in which we're called to live that out the command's the same be strengthened and entrust it's certainly to Timothy and he has to live that out in a particular way in his setting and so it's true for us in the setting in which we live a couple thousand years later in Lawrence Kansas so we ask the question, what does it mean to do this? First of all, this first command, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. This is the central command that, 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 that we need power in order to do this, that he's called us to. Now, this is where the little, the, Greek, the little bit of Greek that I remember from my three semesters of Greek is kind of helpful. And if you parse this verb, to be strengthened, this is what you come up with. This verb, some of you like this, the rest of you can just turn off for a second, but for this is a present, passive imperative. It's a present tense verb, meaning that it's an ongoing thing. As long as it's now, as long as there's a need, you need to always be strengthened. So continual, be being strengthened. The second is that it's a present, it's a passive, and that's a funny In the sense that it is passive in that it is, um, it's something that's done to us. It's something that we receive. It's an action that we receive. And so this strength is something that comes to us, not something that we generate, not something that comes originally from us. So we must receive it. It's a passive to be strengthened, to receive this. A couple weeks ago, we had some friends, some kids over of some friends of ours that we were watching them. We, we haven't had kids in our house for a little while, but in our basement, we have a little console that's called a Wii. And we haven't played that for quite a while. And this little boy saw, learned that we had a Wii. Was, he was excited to, to play the game. And so I don't really know how to set it up. So anyway, we pulled it out and it's got all the games, all the different discs and whatever goes in it, the joysticks. And it even has that little platform that you dance on or whatever. And so I pulled it all out for him and we began to set it up. But there was one piece missing. Can you imagine what that was? It was the power cord. Poor, (laughs) poor guy. We turned the house upside down trying to find the power cord. Who knows where it is? We're in the middle of moving. The power cord was missing. Do you know how good that game is without a power cord? To him, no fun at all. We're passive. There's nothing we can produce. There's nothing that can come through us or from us apart from this strength that comes from the grace that's in Christ Jesus. We don't have it. Jesus said it like this You're the vine? I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you are in me and I'm in you, guess what happens? You will bear much fruit. But apart from me, guess what? You can do nothing. And so this passive reality of our lives that unless the strength comes from somewhere else, we don't have it. We can't produce it. We can't generate it. And that's where we find ourselves. And the command follows to be strengthened. It's present, always passive. It comes from outside to us. Finally, the imperative, the command, to be strengthened. And by the way, to obey the command requires that we acknowledge and recognize that we don't have strength. We don't have what we most need. And that it must come from another source. And so this strength comes from outside. It comes from the grace that alone is in Christ Jesus. And there's two observations i want to make about this strength of which we're commanded to be strengthened by first of all it's an aspect or component of the manifold wealth of all that we have received by being in christ by being a christian by responding to the gospel what we get is nothing short of the very presence of god living in us so this strength is a result of of God dwelling in us through his son. So that strength is is that picture of God's presence. If you go back into the Old Testament and you open up to the verse, verse chapter of the book of Joshua, as Joshua is now taking over for Moses and he's leading the Israelites into the promised land, he's seeking to do something that Moses couldn't or wouldn't be able to do. And God says to him three times in just a few short verses, be strong and courageous because you will, en- you will enable this people to inherit the land. Be strong and courageous. The second time, do everything I've commanded you to do. And then finally, he says, have I not commanded you? And you say, yeah, I think you have twice now. Be strong and courageous. And he concludes that section with these words, because I am with you wherever you go. The strength that Joshua would exhibit, the strength and courage would come and flow through the very presence of God at work in Him. And that's true for us. If we're going to be active, we're going to receive this, we recognize that it comes alone from God. One of my life verses is Psalm one twenty seven one. It just simply says, Unless the Lord builds the house, the labors labor in vain. There's work you can do. There's work that we can do. But it is pointless unless God meets and attends and joins us in that effort so the strength is a component of the very presence of god in our lives but then secondly the strength that's promised here comes at the time in which it is most needed it's it's experienced in the active faith as we live out what god says is true whether it appears that way or not of putting it in to an action in action in other words the strength that he gives us is not stored like in a reservoir but it's on demand. It comes as we need it in those moments, in those times. God says, I will give you what you need. I, I use the analogy, I was thinking about this, and I was a good analogy, but of like a hot water heater that has hot water as a, reser- as a reserve or on demand hot water. That as you need it, it comes on. There's no promise that you have this reserve of power that you get to draw from. But God says, as you put it in practice, I will meet you. At that moment, at that time, I will give you what you need, the power and the strength in order to represent and to preserve the gospel. An important example, it's interesting, also back in the book of Joshua, the the Israelites were getting ready to cross over the Jordan. As they cross over the Jordan, the instructions are this, to line up and that the priests were to take the Ark of the Covenant And then they are literally wade into the Jordan. And when you read the text of that passage, it says that at the moment that the soles of the feet of the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant touched the surface of the Jordan, which was, by the way, at flood stage, God's power is displayed. Not before, but only at that moment as they touched the water did God say, boom, now I'm showing up. He didn't spread it out before them. And so they're lined up, ready to go. How foolish does that look if they step into the water and nothing happens? But in faith, as they engage that moment, they see God show up. They see his power. They see his strength. That's the same as true for us. We don't have this reserve. But God says, I will be with you in those moments of time. I will show up. I will be strong for you. I will give you that strength. There's a great story in Cory Tin Boom's account of the hiding place, as she writes about a time in her life when she was afraid, deathly afraid of death, and, and gives us this example. And, and she writes, Father said as he she shared her concern or her great fears about death, father sat down on the edge of a narrow bed. Corey, he began gently. When you and I go to Amsterdam, when do I give you your ticket? I sniffed a few times considering this. Why, just before we get on the train. Exactly. And our wise Heavenly Father knows when we're going to need things too. Don't run out ahead of Him, Corey. When the time comes that some of us will have to die, you will look into your heart and you'll find the strength you need just in time. The way God's strength operates... Is that at just the right time, he says, I will strengthen you. I will be there with you. How about you? One of my thoughts moving forward in my life at this point is that I'm going to transition personally my life experience from being an associate pastor to being a a lead pastor, whatever that means. Folks have asked me at different points, Do you feel ready? And I go, Are you crazy? Are you, are, you, are you kidding? <laughs> I've spent 16 years, if you will, under the care of another. The senior pastor, right? When things really happen, you go to him. When things are really difficult, I walk down my office out of mine and into his. And now somehow I'm going to be put in that place. And I got to be honest with you. There's a kind of fear. There's, there's, a, there's a wondering How's that going to go? What's that going to be like to be there? And I got to tell you that this promise, this command it is so refreshing to me to go, oh, yeah. it's not a reserve, it's on demand. At the time, at the moment is the promise that by God's grace, I and you will receive exactly what you need at just the right time. And guess what happens? As we do that, this good news is preserved. This good news, this gospel of what God has done for us is put on display. And God demonstrates his power in and through us. as not completely passive, but these creatures that activated by his power and trust him. So the strength comes at just the right time for us. What's his strength for? What's his strength for? He goes on to say it's to entrust in verse 2. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The strength has as its, its byproduct, its effect is that we'll be able to pass that on in our lives. Faithful to pass it on to faithful people who will be able to continue to do that. Paul says, what you've heard from me, this is the the message that was passed on, passed down, first from Christ to the apostles, Paul being one of them, then on to Timothy and so on. It's entrusted to him. In the presence of many witnesses, this is a strange phrase to our ears, but it's important to recognize in that time period, there was a mystery cult that was Gnostic in nature that that, that had this idea that you kept... Those truths secret. And Paul says, no, no, no. What you've heard is in the presence of many witnesses. These things are to be shared broadly, far and wide. Those things that you have heard then passed on to me, he says, that truth, the good news, the good deposit in trust to others. And trust a faithful man who will be able to teach others. And here's the charge of the call to Paul, to Timothy. It's a charge to us. It's a command to those who have the gospel, understand what it is, this good deposit, to entrust it, be faithful, to seek, to pass it on in our words, to pass it on in our lives in the way that we live, to embody it, to speak of it, to allow it to frame and to shape. The way that we live so that others will see the beauty of it, the goodness of it. Not perfectly, but in real time and space, we get to do that. It's a call to be faithful in that place. Faithful men and women. I throw that in, this term the word itself has some breadth of meaning, certainly involved both men and women. There's good reason if you read this that the particular application for Timothy was to men. He was in charge. He was charged to pass it on to other pastors in that period of time. However, we need to understand the application for us. It's, it's all people. And the point here isn't so much the gender as it is the characteristic. Faithfulness is the key. Faithful men and women, people who will be faithful to pass it on to others. That's the operative term here, this picture of faithfulness. And we ask the question, what's that look like? What it means to be trustworthy? You've been given a gift. What are you doing with it? How are you guarding it? How are you protecting it? What are you doing with it? It's been passed on. We're called, it's been entrusted to us. I think maybe the one of the best pictures of this description of faithfulness comes from one of Jesus's, own parables. If you'll turn to Matthew twenty-five, the parable of the talents. If you know this this parable, the master is leaving and he's got really his estate and he gives five talents to one man and two to another and one to another. And then as the and he says, "Put this to work. Do something with the gift that I've given to you." And then he returns. and I want to read verse twenty. Chapter 25. As the master returns and calls his servants, and he who had received five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here. I have made two talents more. And his master said to him the exact same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. We see a picture of faithfulness. They've been given a lot and they did something with it. But here's the point I want to make from that. The master commends them of being faithful in that they were responsible with what they did. But the question is, what was the reward for their faithfulness? And and, and you might say, well, they they got more stuff to, to work with. And I think, yes, that's a part of the truth. But I think we missed the point. The reward is the final phrase of that text. Enter into the joy of your master. You see, it gets at the very heart of faithfulness. Faithfulness isn't just dutifully doing whatever is right in front of me. Faithfulness is being responsible with what this great gift that the master has given to us. Enter into the joy. You see, there's a connection between our faithfulness and the joy of the master. As we realize what a great opportunity we have to actually bring joy to God, our father. We get to delight him in what we do with what he's given to us, even though it's his own power, like the little boy who asks his dad for the money to go buy him a gift. The strength and the gifts come from him as we put them to work, but we get to give them back to him. And in so doing, we get to enter into the joy of our master. We get to enjoy his enjoyment. And so the faithfulness looks like certainly being responsible for the gospel but it also looks like delight. It looks like enjoyment that we get to do this for God. And guess what we get to do? We get to bring a smile to the face of our father as, we're, as we persevere in this. As we take this good gift and we live it out, we get to take, put a smile on his face, even by his power and his strength. One of the commentators I came across writes this. He said, Christian, what Christian ministry requires is not originality or innovation, but faithfulness. And I think this is true for us. But faithfulness, it's driven by a love and wanting to bring delight to our God. As we begin to, to land the plane here. We see the self-perpetuating nature of these commands. Be strengthened and entrust. Entrust to people who will continue. And you see the sequence which is here, which Paul wants to put in place. That the gospel always produces, by the way, it's an imperishable seed, is that it's from Jesus to Paul to Timothy, and then the faithful men and women who will take that and live it out in their words, who will live it out in their lives, such that it will become and be self-perpetuating. So how is it that the gospel is preserved? How is it passed on? How can we have a hope that it will not end with this generation? One, because God is faithful, but two, as we understand where strength comes from and as we understand what faithfulness looks like, as we connect it back to who God is and we understand the nature of our relationships with another, we have great hope that it will be passed on and preserved. I'll end with another an- analogy. My, uh, my son and daughter-in-law were in town this last week. And one of the things that Grace likes to do is she does this, uh, um, these um, sourdough starters. You ever seen this? It's always dangerous to use an analogy you don't know much about. But anyway sourdough starters and I was watching her this week as she was she was doing kind of preparing and I realized how do you preserve a sourdough starter and I watched her and she did these two things she feeds it every so often she feeds it a certain amount and guess what happens it grows but then you know what else you do with a sourdough starter you share it you share it with someone else I think as we think about the gospel, as we think about what it does and how it will grow, that takes place as we feed it together as a community, Christ, as we share it with each other internally and with those outside, understanding that as God strengthens us, we have a great hope that this gospel will continue. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness, faithfulness to us. You have been so kind. Um, My prayer for this congregation um, that it would grow. You continue to bring strength here. That, that the city would would, would would know your goodness. That we would live in, in unity and peace with one another. Even in spite of differences that we might have. That loyalty would be seen. We figure out what that looks like. Help us to do that well, I pray, Father. And strengthen us with your presence and help us to be faithful and trust us to others. Father, so many things going on in our congregation. We're thankful. I, right in front of me, I have the name of one little grandson born, Emmett Ray Eggend, um grandson to Mike and Linda. We are thankful for the healthy birth and then the time in the NICU, but then um, now he's out, he's home. And so we're grateful for that. We give you thanks. Uh, I pray, Father, that you would continue to, to walk with us, strengthen us, Help us be faithful to you and delight in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ask you to stand for the benediction. Also a a reminder that um, if you find yourself in one of those places, abandoned maybe, feeling isolated, uh, we have elders uh, that will be glad to pray for you up here to the left. Uh, Come and join them, and they'd be glad to, to, to kind of be with you in whatever challenge or situation you're in to pray for you so please take advantage of that receive this as god's benediction to us now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power and strength that's at work within us to him be glory in the church and in christ jesus throughout all generations now and forevermore let's sing